0: Hey, good morning, everybody. Glad you are here for week six in our series, The Cross and the Crown. And to get us going today, I wanna introduce you to Spurgeon Wynn. This is Spurgeon Wynn. He was a quarterback at Texas State University, was drafted by the Cleveland Browns, and had, let's just say, a less than astounding NFL career. Uh, Spurgeon went 0-3 as a starter. He threw for a grand total of 585 yards with one touchdown and seven interceptions. A, A Hall of Famer, Spurgeon was not. So maybe you're asking, well, why in the world are we starting off with Spurgeon when? Number one, let's just say his name's Spurgeon, so that's pretty cool because Spurgeon is my favorite preacher of all time, but that's not why I'm showing it to you. See, I'm introducing you to Spurgeon because he was the 183rd pick in the 2000 NFL Draft. He was the sixth quarterback taken in that draft. The seventh was none other than Thomas Edward Brady, who, let's just say, had a much better NFL career. He's won 230 games as a starter, which, by the way, includes seven Super Bowl rings, thrown for over 79,000 yards, 581 touchdowns, and 191 interceptions. As much as it pains me to say it, Tom Brady is probably the greatest quarterback that has ever played in the NFL. And every year in draft week, which was just a few days ago, we see that story come out again about how did Tom Brady get to 199th pick in the NFL draft. When you have somebody like Spurgeon Wynn who was picked ahead of him, how did everybody miss Brady? And I think the easy answer is it's because the the NFL – didn't really know what it was looking for. I mean, to this day, they still don't. You ask the NFL minds, the GMs, the scouts, what makes a good quarterback, and they have all these answers, and yet consistently, they miss guys, maybe not like Brady, but they miss guys. Matter of fact, if you go look at the numbers right now, and granted, Tom Brady has a lot to do with it, sixth-round quarterbacks, quarterbacks picked in the sixth-round have a higher winning percentage in the NFL than quarterbacks picked in the first round. Just let that sink in your mind. Guys who get paid millions of dollars to put a winning football team on the field, quarterbacks they pick in the sixth round have a higher winning percentage than quarterbacks they pick in the first round. Why? Because they don't know what they're really looking for. And if you don't know what you're looking for, you're liable to miss it. Because if what you are looking for isn't what you expect, you're not going to realize it when you see it. And that's why we're talking about this this morning, because the simple truth is, and this is where we're going to start, the kingdom may not be what you expect. For the last uh, five weeks, we've been talking about the kingdom as we journey through Mark's gospel. We've talked about how Jesus brought that future divine kingdom of God into the present through his resurrection, and how because of that, we live in the already but not yet. And we've looked about how Jesus has claimed the crown of this new kingdom, exerting authority in his teaching, authority in healing others, authority in driving out spirits. And we saw last week on the the Mount of Transfiguration, that Jesus confirmed his divine glory in the presence of Peter, James, and John. So we see that crown of the kingdom coming into focus, but the more it comes into focus, it doesn't look like what we expect. See, the kingdom is coming into focus, but it's taking the shape of a cross. And from this week on, We see Jesus turning to Jerusalem, setting his face toward the cross. You see, the kingdom won't come apart from Jesus' suffering and his death that will lead ultimately to his resurrection. And I think we need to start getting that this week. That this kingdom that we're talking about doesn't come apart from the cross, it comes through the cross. The crown of Jesus takes the shape of a cross. N.T. Wright put it like this. N.T. Wright said, the cross is not, for Jesus or for Mark, a difficult episode to be got through on the way to a happy ending. It is precisely God's way of standing worldly power and authority on its head. See, I love that quote because sometimes I think we get in our minds that the cross is just the thing that Jesus had to get through to get to what really matters. But what N.T. Wright reminds us here is that the cross is what really matters. It is not just the ends that the cross brought about, but it is the means of the cross that is important. It is by the cross that Jesus takes the crown. And we're going to see that today in our text about how God uses his kingdom and Jesus institutes his kingdom in a way that turns the kingdom of this world upside down. So if you got your Bibles with you uh, there at home this morning, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. It's not much further than where we left off Mark chapter 9 last week. And we're going to make a big jump next week. But for this week, we're going to look at Mark chapter 10 and almost a continuation of uh, the the conversation from last week. So we're going to pick up reading in Mark chapter 10 in verse 32. We read this. It says, And they were on the road, that they there is Jesus and his disciples, "'Going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. "'And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. "'And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them "'what was to happen to him, saying, "'See, we're going up to Jerusalem, "'and the Son of Man will be delivered over "'to the chief priest and the scribes, "'and they will condemn him to death "'and deliver him over to the Gentiles. "'And they will mock him and spit on him, And flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So here is Jesus with his disciples on the way to Jerusalem. And for the third time in his many chapters, we read about it in chapter 8. We read about it last week in chapter 9. We see it this week in chapter 10. For the third time, Jesus is telling his his followers that he is going to Jerusalem to die. He's going to institute his kingdom, but not with a scepter and a throne. He's going to institute his kingdom through a cross. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's gonna be betrayed. He's going to die. And I think that we, we have to get that. We need to think about that, that. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to die, to give his life for the sin of the world. And that's what sets him apart from every other major world religion. See, every other leader of every other major world religion has lived as a good example. Jesus died as a sacrifice for sin. That's a huge difference. That's the point. But yet his disciples They still don't get it. He told them in chapter eight in Caesarea Philippi when Peter confessed him as the Messiah. He told them in chapter nine when Peter, James, and John had just seen him reflect the glory of God as the Messiah and now making their way to Jerusalem. He tells them again, but this time, he gets a little more detailed, a little more plain, and he says, not only are they gonna kill me, they're gonna mock me, they're gonna spit on me, they're gonna flog me. He starts to bring it into focus. But yet, they still don't get it. We're going to read in just a minute that this, like, believe it or not, flies right over their head because then they just ask him another question about what to do when he comes in his power. The disciples who have heard Peter's confession, Peter, James, and John, James and John, who saw the Mount of Transfiguration, they still don't get it. They're missing it. And when we read this, I think it's easy for us to think, why do these guys keep missing it? Right? Like if Jesus has point blank told them this, not once, not twice, three times, why are they so thick headed that they start missing it? And so I want you to pause right now because instead of looking down your privileged nose at those ignorant fishermen from the past and saying, well, if I would have been there, I would have gotten it. The question's not, why did they keep missing it? When we see these guys who've been walking with Jesus for years now, keep missing it, it should make us ask the question, what am I missing right now? That's the question you should be asking. Not how did they keep missing it because I never would, but realizing that they were right there with Jesus in the flesh for three years and they still missed it. It should make us take a step back and say, well, whoa, what am I missing? What am I missing right now because if I'm being honest with you from the outside looking in man it sure like looks like we're missing a lot it looks like the church in America is missing a lot you don't have to be on the internet youtube tiktok very long to see that people are leaving the church in droves and the reason why is not because they've lost faith in Jesus it's because they've lost faith in the church They look at the church and they say, why do you guys keep missing it? What I see in the church is not what I see in Jesus. Why does the church look so much like the world? Why are our divorce rates exactly the same as those who don't know Jesus? Why do we respond to others on the internet, on social media, the same as those who don't know Jesus? Why are we still addicted to pornography like those who don't know Jesus? Why are our churches structured just like a Fortune 500 company? Why does the church look so much like the world? What are we missing? Well, I think Jesus goes on to help answer that. Mark understood that they were missing it, and Mark understood after all this what they had been missing. And so he gives us, right after what we just read, another conversation that I think helps shed light on that, what we're missing. So as they continue their journey to Jerusalem, another conversation comes up. We're gonna start in verse 35, right where we left off. It said, and James and John, the son of Zebedee, those are the guys who were up on the mountain with Jesus, came up to Jesus and said to him, teacher, look at this, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Imagine the audacity of these guys. We want you to do whatever we ask for you. And he said to them, now this is the grace of Jesus right here. What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us, me, James, John, brothers, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So so again, James and John are still not getting it. They've seen the Mount of Transfiguration. They've seen Jesus in his glory. They've seen Moses and Elijah come to talk with him. And now they're headed to Jerusalem, the capital of the Hebrew nation. And in their minds, even though Jesus has said three times, I'm not going to set up a throne. I'm going to go to a cross. I'm going to die They still think, oh man, he's fixing to set up his kingdom here and now. He's fixing to come in power. He's fixing to come in authority. He's fixing to come in his glory. And so Jesus, when you get there, when you do that, let us be the next Moses and Elijah. Let us sit on your right hand and your left. They make that request. Well, actually, (laughs) if you look at Matthew's gospel, Matthew was probably a little salty because he notes that it wasn't just James and John who asked this of Jesus they sent their mom to ask this of Jesus. Their mom goes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, remember my boys, you know? Uh, and so it's this request showing that they don't get it. Their request reveals that superficial understanding that they had of what it looks like to really follow Jesus, what it means to truly live in this new kingdom. And it shows even more than that, their inflated opinion of their own self. I'm glad none of us can relate to that because we all have a real understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. We all know exactly how to live in the kingdom and none of us, at least none of us that I know of, have an inflated opinion of ourselves. he said sarcastically. Keep reading. It said, Jesus said to them, guys, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to set at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Here's how Jesus answers the question, which by the way, can we just talk about the grace of Jesus for a minute? When they make this ridiculous request, give us whatever we ask of you, he doesn't come down on them harshly. He, he says, well, what do you want? And when they say, we want the best seats in the house, we want the right and the left, we want the power and authority, he doesn't even rebuke them super harshly at this point. He looks at them and you can hear the love of a father, the heart of a shepherd when he says, guys, you don't know what you're asking. And then he talks about this cup and this baptism. Now, maybe that's a little bit confusing to you, and I get it, because that's not language that we talk about a whole lot in the church today. But when we see this picture of the cup and the baptism, the word for baptism there is the word to be immersed. That's why we baptize people all the way under the water. But it's in this context used more like the picture of a flood. The idea of the cup and the baptism or the flood is a picture of divine judgment and suffering. Jesus is telling them, look, if you want to follow me, if you want a place in my kingdom that suffering will come with it, and you've got to be prepared for that. And before we kind of get all of our mixed motives squared away, it's not that if you suffer, you get this high place, If you're miserable here on earth, then you get a bigger mansion in heaven. That's not the point. The point is not that you do this here so that you can get this there. Remember, the cross was not a something we had to get past. The cross was the point. The cross was the crown. Suffering is the point. Here's the point. Let's make it as clear as we can. There is a cost to following Jesus. Like, you need to hear that. If you've been a Christian for decades, you need to hear that. If you're watching this morning and you're thinking, man, I feel like something's happening in my heart, and you are close to that point of faith of giving your life to Jesus, you need to know that when you do, there is a cost. And I'm afraid that's not how the world sees it. The world sees it as a get out of hell free card following Jesus. The world sees it as it'll make you feel better when you're having a bad day. It reminds me of one of my least favorite church songs ever. It's a church song we used to sing that says, Jesus heals my body when I'm feeling bad. He makes me happy when I'm feeling sad. Yes, that was in a church hymn book. And I'm thinking, that's not the point. There's a cost When we follow Jesus. And the reason that the world doesn't see that cost is because that's not always how the church has talked about it. We have, as a church in America, tended to make Jesus this add on to your life that's gonna make it better. That's gonna make it easier, that's gonna make you happier. And while all of those things may be true in the right context, the point Jesus here is making is that to follow Jesus, as we said last week, is to follow him to the cross. It is suffering. There is a cost. And too many Christians want to have Jesus without having the cross. And Jesus goes on, verse 41, and we learn that the other disciples get wind of James and John's request. It says, and when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. You think that's an understatement there? (laughs) These guys have been living together for three years and James and John send their mama to go try and undercut the rest of the group. They become indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, Now, now here's where it gets pointed. You know that those who were considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. That phrase lorded over is like exercise authority, power, control. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So when Peter and the other guys get wind of what's happening, and in my mind, just by the way, this is 100% Peter leading this charge, right? Because Peter thought he was boys with James and John. They just went behind his back. So this is Peter. And they're mad. They're aggravated. They're indignant. How could you? But Jesus, again, with unfathomable unfathomable grace and the heart of a shepherd, uses this not as a place for judgment, but as a place for teaching. And he teaches this huge point. This point that we can't get around. To be great in the kingdom, you have to serve. To be first in the kingdom means to be the slave of all. And man, this is so counterintuitive. This is really upside down is what Jesus is saying. Because in the world, in upside down, in, in the world, uh, it's that, you know, the, the greater you are, the more power you have. And in the upside down kingdom, it is the greater you are, the more power you give up. I mean, I'm having a hard time putting it in words, so let's just let Danny Aiken, guy smarter than me, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, let him put it in words. This is what he says. In the world, the more important you are, the more people serve you. Jesus says. Not so, but is it among you? Not so among you. In his world, the more important you are, the more people you serve. Jesus opposes the mindset of the world, their way of thinking, and so must we. See, what, what Danny's saying, what Jesus was saying is that to live in the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. It's not about power. It's not about authority. It's, about, it's not about control. But to be great, you have to serve. To be first, you have to become last. It is about a self-emptying for the good of others. Now, here's what, what I need you to zoom in on for just a minute. This is not just some cute idea that has no bearing on our lives. Guys, this is the nature Of the kingdom. And I think the danger here when we talk about this is to say yes and amen and yet go out into the world and live just like the world to look out for ourselves, to push ourselves to the top, to try to grab as much power, grab as much authority, grab as much control, grab as much wealth, grab as much success, grab as much prestige, grab as much popularity, grab as much influence as possible, and pay no mind to what Jesus is clearly teaching here. And I think that we're content to take this verse, put it in a picture frame, hang it on our wall, and never really think about what the impact would have if we let this upside-down kingdom really turn our lives upside down too. See, we've got to get past the point that we think living in the kingdom is coming to church for one hour a week on a Sunday morning and then ignoring these foundational ideas of what the kingdom is in our Monday through Saturday lives. See, that's what the kingdom is. It's more than just that hour. The kingdom is these principles fleshing themselves out in our lives every day of the week. And that's why I said this kingdom, it's not like the world. It's upside down. This kingdom is inside out. This takes us right back to what Jesus said in the second week of this series that you can't put the new wine of the kingdom in the old wine skin of the old kingdom because they don't mix. You can't take the new patch of the new kingdom and put on the old garment of your old way of life. It won't fit. See, this new kingdom requires us to see things in a new way, live things out in a new way, to live upside down. And then in verse 45, Jesus gives us the what, the why, the how. He just puts the point on it. He says, you know why? For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus drives this point home. I love that phrase when he says, for even the son of man. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. See, that for even means that if anybody in all of history had the right to demand to be served, to demand the right to control, to demand the right to live in the authority of the way we think about it in the world, it was the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, said, but even he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that phrase, give his life as a ransom for many, radically redefines what everybody thought the Messiah would be. You remember up to this point, everybody thought the Messiah was going to be this conquering king. But now Jesus is saying, No, I'm going to be a suffering servant. He is the Messiah, but he's a suffering Messiah. He's a serving Messiah. He's the man for all men. The man sent from heaven. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve us. And here's the point. If he serves, we serve. If he gives, we give. If he suffers, we suffer. And if he would humble himself to take on human flesh and become obedient, even to the point of the cross, then we have to work every single day to live and walk in that same humility and set aside the arrogance of the old kingdom. And that is tough, it's hard. It's more than just, like we said, coming to church an hour a week. But but lean in and think about it. If we really did, as followers in Jesus, embrace this upside down kingdom, walked in the service and suffering and humility that he himself showed, what would that look like and mean to our world today? What would it look like in this nation if the church rose up not as a voice in the political realm, but as the hands and feet of Jesus serving our communities? What would it look like in our communities if local churches began to exist for more than just their own good? What if we began to exist for the good of our communities? And in our homes, what would it look like husbands? What would it look like wives? What would it look like kids if we really saw ourselves as the servant of those that God has placed in this home with us? Can I tell you it wouldn't be the same? It would be different that that upside-down kingdom could turn the world upside down. But I think the hang-up for us is is that for us, and said it, it's still just a cute idea. It's not really real. And so the question I want to leave you with today, the question I want you to really think through, really wrestle through is this. Is the upside-down kingdom a Sunday idea, or is it an everyday reality? Because I think if we get really honest with ourselves for just a few minutes this morning, we would have to admit that this upside down kingdom is far more of a nice idea than it is an actual reality. And I get it because maybe you're thinking, well, Chip, you just don't know how hard it would be to live that way. You don't know how much change it would require. I get it. I do. The only way that this is even possible is not that there's something deep inside our sinful and broken hearts that has the power for us to do this in and of ourselves, but not only is Jesus the example, he is the means by which we can live this way. See, the cross, when we go to the cross to meet Jesus there, that sacrifice brings real humility into our life. It helps us take ourselves Not too seriously helps us trust ourselves, not too much. And we see that then the only way for us to live out this purpose is to stop living focused just on ourselves, but to live like Jesus for the sake of those around us. We have to follow the footsteps of Jesus here. We've got to live and this reality of an upside down kingdom that is invading our world right now. And the hardest thing we have to do is fight to believe it's true. You gotta fight to say, yes, this is the way, because everything in this world and everything in your sinful heart is gonna tell you to put yourself first, to look out for you, to do what it takes to get ahead in this world. But we have to fight to believe there's a better way, there's a new kingdom, and it's upside down. You know, I think that I've confessed to you guys on more than one occasion I'm a skeptic. It's a miracle I'm a Christian, much less a pastor. And so I would be lying to you if I said there wasn't times that I thought, man, I wonder if this actually works. Like if I live this way, if I try to put others first, if I think of their needs instead of my own, if I let go of authority, if I let go of control, if I let go of influence and popularity, does that mean that I'm just gonna be a rug that gets walked over? Am I just gonna be stabbed in the back? Am I just gonna be taken advantage of? And honestly, the answer is maybe. But here's what I wanna give you a little bit of hope with as we end this morning. See, the disciples, they just didn't get it, right? They didn't get it in Mark 8, didn't get it in Mark 9, didn't get it in Mark 10. I would argue they didn't even get it after the crucifixion because after the crucifixion, instead of expecting Jesus to rise victorious over the grave, they ran and hid. But you know what? Eventually, they did get the upside-down kingdom. Because after Jesus rose from the dead, he spent 40 days with them. He ascended into heaven, and then 40 days later, he poured out his spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, on those early disciples. And I think when that happened, something changed. They got it. And they begin to live in the reality of this upside-down kingdom, following in the footsteps of Jesus, walking as he walked, serving as he served, suffering as he suffered. But we read in Acts chapter 19 that in so doing, they, through living out the reality of the upside-down kingdom, turned the world upside down. They didn't get it. But when they did, man, did it make a difference. And so my hope today is that you would realize that that same Holy Spirit lives or can live in you. And that when we live in this reality and treat it not like some cute little idea, but embrace it as a way of life, that we can turn our homes, our communities, our nation, upside down once again. I'm going to pray that that would happen. Pray with me. God, thanks for the time to spend together this morning. God, I pray that your word would work its way deep in our hearts. God, and that you would help us to see These foundational truths of the kingdom, of service, of sacrifice, of suffering, not as some cute idea that we talk about and sing about on Sunday morning, but we would see them as real truth that impacts our lives even as we step out of our doors this afternoon. God, I pray that you would turn us upside down, that you would help us to turn this world upside down. And in so doing, we would help further your kingdom here and now.